Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Charity Charge Show. Today, we have with us Thomas Canavan, who is the Executive Director of the National Law Enforcement Museum. Thomas, thank you so much for being a guest. Stephen, it's great to be here. Likewise. I, I love doing the podcast for a variety of reasons. Um, one of the fun things is obviously doing it with organizations that we work with. Sometimes I have guests that you know we, we don't directly work with. Sometimes I, we have guests that already members and using charity charge. And so this is a really fun episode, but I know when we got connected, I didn't even realize that we were working together. So let me publicly thank you uh, for being a part of charity charge. Absolutely. Yeah, no, it's uh, that was a, a fun coincidence as I, when you had reached out, I thought yeah, and, the same charity charge. As we've grown, it's, it's been really interesting for me just to see the arc this June, we're going to celebrate our sixth year. And, um, you know, it was a labor of love because I, I bootstrap, we're set up as we're, we're a business, we're set up as a social enterprise. And, um, you know, in the early days, uh, I was just doing everything and had my hands in, in everything and anything. Um, and so I kind of got a chuckle when I, when I realized that, cause, cause we've had some really great growth as people have joined the team. And, um, anyway, that was a fun experience for me as things have picked up, but, um, great to be working working with you and really wanted to take this podcast episode to talk to you about your work with the National Law Enforcement Museum and also talk about, um, you know, your experience as an executive director and nonprofit leader. Um, to start us off, could you just give a bit of background of your, your personal background, how you came to the National Law Enforcement Museum, and then focus on the mission of the organization, please? Sure. Yeah, so... I was born here in Washington, D.C. and grew up in Maryland, went to University of Maryland, College awesome. Park. Go Terps. Yep. Go Terps. I'm, I'm a Maryland baby myself. Yep. Excellent. Yep. So immediately after graduating from University of Maryland with my degree in studio arts, I got my master's degree from Boston University in arts administration. So at that time, the plan was to work in some way within the museum field, uh, certainly within the arts uh, in some way. And during that time, I really became interested in community-based organizations, which took me down a different path than, than the one I was um, moving towards related to museums. So for the early part, of my career, I worked within community-based art organizations and education, DC public schools, uh, for example. And uh, from there did uh, some teaching and, and traveling. And uh, in 2013, my wife and I moved to Los Angeles where I worked for an art organization um, east of Los Angeles. So I was there for uh, five years at the Millard Sheets Art Center. It's a fantastic uh, facility located in Pomona, California. And uh, my wife and I had our, our son uh, while we were there in California and decided to move back to Maryland. And I was able to uh, get another opportunity in the arts uh, here in Maryland. And during that time, I was introduced to the CEO for the National Law Enforcement Officers Memorial Fund, 
that's the parent organization for the National Law Enforcement Museum and the National Law Enforcement Officers Memorial, which are located side by side in Judiciary Square. And so this opportunity was open. And as you can imagine, spending, you know, the, the first part of my career in the visual arts and education, the idea of becoming the executive director for the National Law Enforcement Museum uh, seemed like an interesting proposition. So after some thought and, um, you know, a few rounds of interviews with the team at the museum, um, I was offered the position of executive director of uh, programs and exhibits. So kind of where, where I was going to begin there. And it was a, a really uh, kind of exciting uh, opportunity, right? To take what I had learned within education, within the visual arts, uh, within, you know, a, a personal life experience with museums. I mean, museums have always been a part of of what I, I did personally, where I went, when I went to cities across the country or internationally. So, so the opportunity to work within this space and subject matter, I felt was one of the most unique opportunities somebody could be offered. And to not accept that opportunity um, just would have been foolish, you know? So, um, so here we are. So that, that began my, my time at the museum it was December, 2019. And we closed in March, 2020 due to the pandemic. So I was there while we were up and running for a few months. Um, and, uh, we've reopened in August, 2021 uh, uh, and have been up and running since. So, really excited about where we are today. Talk to us about the mission of the, <clears throat> both the Memorial Fund and the museum. And what are some of the exhibits and features that, um, you know, are most popular or you're most proud of? Yeah. So, so the National Law Enforcement Officers Memorial Fund, um, as I said, is, is the parent organization for both the Memorial and the museum. And also uh, we have a, a third pillar uh, around officer safety and wellness. So our mission is to honor the fallen, the officers who made the ultimate sacrifice and, and died in the line of duty, tell the story of American law enforcement and make it safer for those who serve. So those are the, the three things that our organization is focused on. And I have the privilege of uh, leading the museum and, and telling the story of American law enforcement. And, you know, as you can imagine, um, there's a lot of stories to tell, a lot of stories of, of heroism, a lot of stories of sacrifice, um, and unknown stories, officers from long ago who, you know, were a, a part of, um, of making this country, you know, what it is today. So we have a lot of of different exhibitions within the museum as part of our, our permanent um, collection. We have a really beautiful um, history time capsule that, that tells uh, individual stories across the history of law enforcement beginning uh, from the uh, very early days in the, the 18th century. And uh, that's probably 
probably the section that's um, most traditional, I guess, in a way, right? That's centered around artifacts. And a lot of the museum is very interactive. Um, we have a lot of uh, immersive experiences. We have two simulators uh, built into the museum experience. So one, a decision simulator where we talk about use of force and um, you know, moments where law enforcement officers have to make really challenging uh, decisions. The other is a patrol sim where visitors to the museum can sit within a, uh, a patrol simulator with the full dashboard and it has three screens and uh, that's a very immersive and, and uh, depending on your equilibrium, a, a little uh, nauseating, uh, but it's a, a really a really awesome experience. And actually it's the um, only such experience outside of a police academy within the United States. Uh, so we're really focused on trying to give visitors and, and the public an opportunity to really get a sense of, uh, of what it's like to be a law enforcement officer and, and what they have to learn. Um, what they have to know throughout their career and, and the types of experiences that they have. We also have a 911 call center that allows visitors to uh, sit in the seat of our 911 operators. <clears throat> and wow. when we- Is this an active, is this a recreation or this is an active 911 center that's on site? No, it's a recreation. Yep. So we have, um, <clears throat> we have four sections within the, uh, this exhibition and uh, you can take calls and, you know, try to make decisions, right. Based on, on that information that you're getting. And, and Thomas, I want to um, ask you a few questions, which is, you know, you, um, <clears throat> as you mentioned, you stepped in to lead the organization and be there uh, at an interesting time, obviously with COVID, which affected a lot of, um, you know, nonprofit organizations and especially museums, right. That, that, that their mission, their business model was bringing people together in a physical space. So what was that like um, being shut down? What were some of the things that maybe you learned as a leader, both either from like a strategic sense of like working with your board or others to figure out how, to, how you're going to, um, you know, get to a spot where you can reopen. So I'm kind of asking about the strategic side and then what was it like personally for you and your staff? I'm sure you all faced a lot of perseverance. It was tough for everyone. Um, can you share some of that and kind of give us some perspective over the past past year and a half, two years? And congrats on being open again, which is awesome. Yeah, thank you so much. That's a big, it's a big moment for us. So when the museum closed in March, we unfortunately had to furlough a pretty large percentage of our staff, but we were able to bring the majority of our team back together fairly soon. And when we did, we tried to think of, you know, what we needed to do as a, as an organization, not just from the perspective of the museum, but also our officer safety and wellness and the memorial, right? Because we have to maintain and, and take care of the memorial year round regardless of, of the circumstances. And so, so we began to, to focus on that. We reassigned some staff to you know, other projects within the organization to keep them, to keep them working, uh, which was really an, an important part of what the leadership of the organization was focused on. And 
uh, it was both keeping the organization afloat, but also keeping our team intact and keeping them working and, and keeping income coming into to them and, and their families. So that was one part. <clears throat> From a programmatic perspective, what we did was, and what many organizations did was we shift to what we now call virtual programming. And so we took our public programs, which was a part of what we did in person at the museum, which was bringing people together to talk about the history of law enforcement and contemporary issues and, and what uh, challenges are currently law enforcement officers are facing. So we pivoted to creating these public programs I think they were very successful. They kept the law enforcement community engaged with the museum and with our organization. Uh, in a lot of ways, it allowed us to spread our wings a little bit across the country. The, you know, as a, just a reminder, we opened the museum itself in October of 2018. Mm -hmm. So when we closed in March, 2020, we had only been open for 18 months. Wow. So the opportunity to do public programming online that allowed us to reach an audience across the country that had never heard of the museum before. And so it allowed us to establish a uh, reputation or a brand, right, about, um, you know, what the museum was going to do as a museum. Right, what what we could do, how what, how we could use our platform to bring people together to have these conversations uh, that were important to law enforcement. That's so that's really what, what we focused on. And you know, at a a point, I don't know, I would say maybe halfway through, when we got a sense that we could reopen at least part time and sustain our current staffing levels we started working on our first major exhibition. So I think it was pretty ambitious trying to uh, reopen the museum after being closed for 18 months, in addition to designing, fabricating, installing, and marketing our first major exhibition in the history of the museum. So, and that exhibition was, is currently still up, uh, is post 9-11, the evolution of American law enforcement. And when we launched that exhibition, it was commemorating the 20th anniversary of 9-11. But what we wanted to do, instead of talking about 9-11 itself, you know, on how the events of the day unfolded and and the, the details around that, we decided to focus on how 9-11 impacted law enforcement over the last 20 years and what law enforcement learned through the tragedy of 9-11 and how communications improved, how community engagement improved, technology, information sharing, you know, the, uh, the creation of Homeland Security, the consolidation of a lot of federal agencies. So all of these things that, that a generation today 
who are in high school or even, you know, 19, 20 or early 20s who are too young to remember what was happening. We have a lot of things that are baked into our society now that weren't there before 9-11, which is just amazing to think about. I think about it a lot. Um, I was a sophomore in high school when when 9-11 occurred. And it's just wild when it comes around every year. And it's one of the few things everyone kind of feel like generationally kids have like that moment where something seminal, I mean, candidly, it could be positive or, or negative, you know, like people remembering when JFK was assassinated or when uh, we landed on the moon, you know, stuff like that. I'd hear from my parents and 9-11 is, is definitely one, unfortunately, one of those moments that, you know, I'll never forget where I was. And, and then it's just wild seeing the changes. I mean, thinking about flying before and after and all that. So that's really cool that you guys are, um, you know, educating and highlighting that. The experience with the TSA, which was a new, uh, a new thing as well, but the security scanners, I mean, the whole process of, you know, the, the experience at the airport was, um, you know, was largely because of that. So, so anyway, so that's why we wanted to really focus uh, within that that um, part of the subject, right? Part of 9-11. That's awesome. So, um, yeah, so we did. And, and when we reopened, we reopened with that exhibition. We've been, as I mentioned, open, you know, part-time. We Before, uh, before we closed, we were open six days a week for general admission and groups. And now what we've done is we have, we're open currently two days a week for general admission, but we're open for groups five days a week. No, I'm sorry, six days a week. And talk to us about, you know, just kind of learning more about your work. I know that you have different um, programming for different audiences, including, I believe, you know, you, you have programs for children to come in. I think with, with there's classrooms. Can you talk to us about what you're doing, whether those are in person or virtual? Cause that seems like a really awesome initiative for youth. Yeah. So when, when we reopened, we were, you know, excited about reopening obviously, but also, you know, getting students back in the museum, which was a big part of what we worked towards before the museum had closed. So we had a lot of student groups where the museum itself is, um, it's not small, but it's not enormous. It's underground. So it's really contained. And you imagine this nice contained uh, space full of interactive and engaging exhibits and artifacts. And, you know, and so uh, I think it's a really beautiful space for learning you know, within a museum, just the whole thing. So we think about a separate classroom space. We really, uh, we really pull in the entire museum as that, that learning space. Mm-hmm. So uh, we do have a, a separate learning center where we, where we hold workshops and we have workshops around, uh, one of the most popular is around DNA and, and forensic science, which, you know, aligns with uh, STEM-based education and, and common core standards. So we have a lot of student groups that come from, from all over the country. Uh, in addition to groups within schools 
and some school uh, uh, structures, you have, you know, separate academies, right? So you have criminal justice academies or um, public service, right? Public safety, people thinking about careers and as first responders, you know, so, so we have a lot of those students that come uh, as well. We just had a, a group that was here yesterday from uh, Worcester, Worcester, Worcester. Oh, that's one of those. I'll never, I'll never get it, never get it right. Um, but uh, Worcester. Yeah. There's also a Worcester. Worcester, I know. So, um, so this was Worcester County, uh, Eastern Shore, Maryland. Okay. It was a a high school uh, class. We're all studying criminal justice. So it's, it's just a, a unique place. I and mean, where, you know, what other museum would those students really go to, right? To see their future, right? Where a, a place that's specifically dedicated to the career paths that, that they're hoping uh, to be a part of. So we do a considerable amount of, of work with students. I appreciate you sharing that. I wanted to, uh, I want to touch on a few more things, but one of the things I wanted to comment a little bit on to just give some perspective to the audience um, are some of the law enforcement facts that are laid out on your website. And um, just wanted to point this out that since the first recorded police death in 1786, there have been more than 22,000 law enforcement officers killed in the line of duty. Uh, And currently there are 22,611 names engraved on the walls of the National Law Enforcement Officers Memorial. I, I noticed on here, we talked a bit about 9-11, and that's the deadliest day in law enforcement history, September 11th, 2001, when 72 officers were killed responding to the terrorist attacks on America. What I didn't know is the deadly 20s. The 1920s were the de- deadliest decade in law enforcement history, where in a total of 2,529 officers died, an average of almost 253 each year. The deadliest year was in 1930, when 312 were officers were killed. What, what was going on then? I mean, I'm thinking back to um, prohibition and mobsters and all of that. I mean, what, yeah. Yeah. I think uh, I'm not an expert on. Um, I'm putting you on the spot. I know. So. I know on, uh, on, on the, on those decades, <laughs> but, but I have, I, I, a lot has to do with, with prohibition and, and organized crime. I would like to to point out that uh, 2021 is now the single year record for line of duty deaths with 619 uh, names being added to the wall. Wow. And I wanted to go there. So talk to us about um, what, yeah, what is, what has been happening? I know it's like a divisive issue and, you know, I think it's so important that we have um, police officers and enforcement and, and rules and laws. Um, obviously, I also care, you know, for people of all backgrounds as well. Um, and I'm making, I'm kind of leading the witness here, kind of like in a, in a way answering, posing the question myself instead of just to you. But um, to me, it's such a shame that the awful things that have happened that were awful by certain people have like tarnished 
how important and how amazing so many police officers are. Um, so yeah, what's your, what's your take on it? How has this affected the museum? Um, how are you guys responding? So, so I'll say out of the 619 names that are being added, um, there are over 400 that are 2021. Mm -hmm. We also have a lot of um, COVID-19 related okay. fatalities from 2020 yeah. that are being uh, included this year, as well as we have a, a, a research department and, and half of that department is dedicated to historical line of duty deaths. So departments come across um, stories and information and files about uh, officers who were killed long ago. So we're always adding uh, each year officers from 19th and 18th centuries and early 20th centuries, mid-century, you know, uh, uh, to the wall each year. It's really fascinating to, to hear some of those stories um, as well. But, but, you know, I mean, related to, you know, COVID-19, um, you know, we have uh, each year a lot of, of traffic-related uh, fatalities, uh, firearm, uh, you know, uh, cardiovascular, all right, health-related uh, fatalities. And so for us as an organization, you know, that just makes our mission more relevant. And it just, we double down, you know, to try to figure right. out how do we get to the bottom of this and how do we uh, reduce that number within our officer safety and, and wellness division? We have a program called destination zero. That's all about best practices and, and safety and wellness and trying to get that information across the country so that departments and officers can incorporate that into their lives so they can, you know, be safer and, and avoid uh, some of these same circumstances that have impacted officers in the past. So, you know, that's it, it from a, you know, from my perspective on, on telling the story of American law enforcement and introducing the, you know, general public or um, audiences that uh, from around the world that, that visit the museum, you know, the more they have a understanding of what impacts law enforcement officers each year and from year to year, we have issues that um, you know, communities and law enforcement officers face constantly. And so the more we can talk about it and the more we can educate the public, we hope, you know, some of these things can, can be avoided. And, and with that, talk to us more about Caleb and, mm -hmm. and, and how, you know, you're growing that and evolving that and how that's playing a role. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So Caleb is our social media platform that we created after the death of George Floyd, where there was a lot of unrest around the country and uh, that relationship in, in certain places um, was, was very strained. And so we as an organization, you know, thinking about our platform and, and the connections that we have to the law enforcement community as a whole, wanted to see if it were possible to pull together best practices within that community engagement space. And we created the National Bulletin Board, and this was posted on our, our website, and we invited people to post 
what works in their communities? You know, where have they seen success? So that we wanted to take a situation that was really challenging and see if we could make something positive happen, right? And, and so that we can avoid it in other communities around the country. So we once we had collected a lot of ideas, we saw um, that a lot of these uh, suggestions or recommendations or other programs, uh, you know, were happening in other parts of the country in one way or another. And so we thought that there may be an opportunity to create a place where those ideas can be shared on a regular basis. So where could we kind of meet people in, you know, where they were? So we were thinking about what about a social media platform that was built and designed so that law enforcement community and the public could come together to have a dialogue about what's working in their communities, right? What's happening over in Seattle that might be really, uh, really effective in Baltimore, you know? And, and in a lot of cases, you know, people are really busy, right? Especially law enforcement officers, they work long hours, they work, you know, um, uh, long stretches of, of days in a row. And so, you know, how could we kind of help pull this information back and forth so that, you know, that it could be used. And um, so, so we have, uh, so we have Caleb, which is the community alliances and law enforcement bulletin network. And um, it's up and running. It's a really uh, great project. And we're hoping that, more people will hear about it and, and start to participate. That's awesome. I'm so glad you put that together. It just seems like such a wonderful idea for those that are um, listening. You can join at the Caleb network.org C A L E B the Caleb network.org. Um, tell us about any other um, initiatives um, that that are upcoming um, or, you know, anything that people should know if they're interested in visiting the museum? Yeah, so we have a, a couple of things. We have on April 26th, we have a, a program and I'm not sure when uh, this discussion will be, will be published. Hopefully that, that date will still be relevant, um, but we're pulling together officers that were integral in the Boston Marathon bombing. Mm. And uh, the movie Patriots Day, which uh, most of your listeners will be uh, familiar with, uh, featured uh, three officers who were portrayed by uh, John Goodman, J.K. Simmons, and Kevin Bacon. And so uh, we're bringing those officers into town uh, in Washington, D.C. for sort of a fireside chat about their experience and specifically making the, the film and how the, how the film portrayed the events of that day and, uh, and what we could learn from, from their experience. Uh, so that's a, a program that was supposed to take place in December of 2020, actually, but when Omicron started surging, we uh, postponed it to, to when we thought it would be safe to bring people together again. So that program is a part of the public program series that we created for our post 9-11 exhibition where the Boston Marathon bombing has a, a really significant place uh, within that story. So 
We're really excited about that. It's our first in-person program since February 2020, uh, so a little over two years. And we also have, uh, coming up in the middle of May, we have a Police Week. It's our first in-person Police Week uh, since May 2019. So we're very excited about that. We, the uh, National Law Enforcement Officers Memorial Fund, host a candlelight vigil that happens on the mall uh, each year. We read the names of all the fallen officers uh, who are being added to the wall uh, that year. And then we have, oh, we're working on pretty big digital initiative. Uh, we're working on actually a couple of podcasts that uh, we'll be launching uh, late summer. So we're uh, entering into your foray uh, there and uh, really hoping to take advantage of people who, who like learning in, in different ways. And I think that's a really important thing for museums to think about, right? Not everybody can come to your museum, right? And, you know, people like to read, people like to listen, people like to interact. There's all different learning styles, right? So, uh, so that's a piece for us that we're really excited about uh, launching soon. That's awesome. I'm so glad to, to hear that. And I think it's, you know, your mission and what you're doing is such a broad, basically is there to serve and be a resource for people. I mean, really, quite frankly, all around the world. I think it's really wonderful that you have this in-person place, but you're also continuing to do more and more virtual. Um, which is great. Maybe, maybe you guys will build a museum in the metaverse. Something like that. Idea. You know, get some <laughs> VR visitors would be great. Um, right. Thomas, tell, tell the audience just from kind of proximity perspective in DC, where are you guys located? What's maybe the address or any landmarks that you're near? Um, yep. And um, tell us where they can find you online if they're interested in supporting or getting involved. Yeah, so we are located in the heart of Judiciary Square. We're right across the street from the memorial, which you can access by metro. Um, and our address is 444 E Street, Northwest Washington, D.C., and our website is nleomf.org. So lots of ways uh, to access uh, what we do and to uh, come and visit the museum. That's awesome. Thomas, thank you so much for being on this episode and sharing your, um, what, you're, what you're up to, the organization and, and your background. Very much appreciate oh. having you on. Thank you, Stephen. Thank you for, for you know, giving uh, us the opportunity to talk more about what we're doing. It's really, really important. Very appreciated. Yeah, it's, it's my pleasure. And I'm excited to, to visit in person the museum um, next time I'm in town. Back yep, you, you will be my guest. Well, I look forward to that. Everyone, thanks again for continuing to listen to the Charity Charge Show. Today, our guest was Thomas Canavan, who is the Executive Director of the National Law Enforcement Museum. Once again, thank you for listening.